Jeremiah chapter 17. We're looking at verses 5 through 13 this evening. Jeremiah 17, beginning with verse 5. We ask that we would rise in reverence for God's word. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the streams and does not fear when heat comes, for it leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord searches the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at the end he will be a fool. A glorious throne sets on high from the beginning is the place of his sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Thus ends the reading of God's word for this evening. Let us look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Ask your blessing now as I proclaim that message. Be with my lips as I speak. Be with our ears and our hearts as we hear your word. May we be ready to understand. May we be ready to live in obedience to your word by the power of your spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I was completing my sermon series on Abraham, in particular with the emphasis upon how Abraham worked faith, excuse me, how God worked faith into Abraham, I realized that there's a great danger when addressing the issue of the importance of faith. It's easy to fall into the idea that faith in and of itself is a positive thing. Our culture aids in that falling into that trap. Pastors are called many things today, but one of the things that they are called that is seen to be positive is that we're men of faith or people of faith, I guess they would say today. I heard a non-Orthodox pastor years ago say, I don't care what you believe, but I am more concerned that you believe. He was a man of faith. But I would not call that a good thing. The reality is that faith together with terms like trust and believe are rather neutral terms in the Bible. G.K. Chesterton wrote, When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. 
They then become capable of believing in anything. In the 2008 documentary film, Expelled, Ben Stein gives a glimpse into academia and their closed-mindedness to anything other than the belief in philosophic materialism. They deny any possibility of the supernatural, which includes finding any design in creation that would point onto God. In one scene from Expelled, Ben Stein is interviewing Christopher Dawkins, the noted atheist. Stein asks him where life came from. Dawkins has no answer, but when pressed, poses the possibility of crystals and also the possibility of life on Earth coming from a garbage dump in advanced aliens when they visited the Earth. But he totally rejects the idea of a creator God. Dawkins' rejection of God does not mean he believes in nothing, but rather that he is open to believe in anything other than God. This evening we consider Jeremiah chapter 17. And I want to see the contrast between worthless faith and faith of great value. I want to see the difference between faith firmly based on the God who has revealed himself in the Bible and all other faith, whether placed in man or in man-made things whether that be God or something else. We begin by looking at the negative. To trust in mere man brings a curse and stunts growth, verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Note that this cursed man does two things simultaneously. He trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. That's one of them. He believes in man. The second is his heart turns away from the Lord. The word that is used here concerning him is cursed. Curse is used here as an act of God's judgment on rebellion. Adam and Eve were cursed by God. They were removed from the Garden of Eden, and the curse brought pain in work and pain in childbearing. It's easy to see in God's curse the reality of penalty and of punishment. But I'd like us also to note that mercy of God that is seen despite the curse that we experience in this world. Adam and Eve could have been eternally condemned, but they were not. Indeed, the curse, in part, is given that they might see their need to return to God. Curse, both the universal curse on mankind and the individual curses that come from individual sin, are punished. But other than eternal condemnation, they are always accompanied by mercy. 
In his commentary concerning Jeremiah 17, Charles Feinberg says, where one depends on man, spiritual life cannot thrive. That person is like the dwarf juniper of the desert. Its leaves are not refreshed by rain, so it is both stunted and starved. This is the lot of the person foolish enough to trust in mere man. As we looked at God's building the faith of Abraham, we saw times of great faith. And we also saw times when Abraham fell from that great faith in God to trust in mere man. When his trust was in human ingenuity rather than in God, and God's promise, his life shriveled up. When there was famine in the promised land, after Abraham had just entered that land in chapter 12, Abraham goes on to Egypt and passes off his wife as his sister. His plan to protect himself from Pharaoh worked. But as he saw Sarah taken into Pharaoh's harem, Abraham's shriveled up as a man, having failed to protect his wife. God rescues Sarah and Abraham. God's mercy won out, but Abraham's plan had failed. Later, he uses the same ploy again, and the same pattern follows. His life shrivels up by his trust in the schemes of man. As the years go by, Sarah remains barren. Abraham listens to his wife's plan and goes into Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, in order to father a son. Again, the human plan seems to work. Ishmael is born. But again, Abraham suffers. Sarah's not happy. And because Sarah is not happy and mistreats her handmaiden, Hagar is not happy. And I think it's safe to say that any man who has two unhappy wives is not happy. Again, the Lord's merciful intervention and Sarah is promised a son. God delivers on his promise. Isaac is born. Abraham learns to trust the Lord and the Lord alone, but through it all, his life takes those up and down turns, and whenever he turns away from trusting in the Lord and trusts in man, whether that's himself or his wife, whatever it is, his life shrivels up. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had an even harder time shedding his worthless faith in mere man and coming to embrace faith in God alone. For Jacob, it started with a, a shrewd trade of a birthright for a bowl of stew. The birthright belonged to the firstborn, and Esau was the firstborn, if only by a matter of minutes, perhaps. But the firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance. Esau was starving for food and despised his birthright in making the trade. Jacob did not trust God, but trusted himself and the opportunity to take advantage. It worked. He got the birthright. 
but at the cost of the increased animosity between the twin brothers. And I think we can perceive that his life was shriveled at that point. It's interesting that years later, at the time of their receiving their inheritance when their father dies, both brothers are wealthy and neither one seems to care about the double portion at all. Next, with the help of his mother, Jacob resorts to trickery. Man-centered, of course. He dressed up to feel like his brother and get his nearly blind father to give him the blessing that was intended for his brother Esau. Trickery works, but Jacob is forced to flee for his life to his uncle Laban. There, the trickster is tricked by Laban, and he marries the wrong daughter. Life goes on for Jacob with the two wives, and he lives in Haran for the next 20 years. As Jacob locks horns with his father-in-law, he turns to trust in science. Since the Lord is with Jacob and everything is going so well with Laban as Jacob cares for the sheep, Laban and Jacob make a business deal. The sheep and goats born stripped, spotted, and speckled will be Jacob's wages. We read of Jacob turning to the latest in animal science in Genesis 30, verses 7 through 9. Jacob, however, we read, took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plan trees and made white strips on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Now, I call that science. Some of you may say that sounds a lot more like magic to me. But C.S. Lewis writes in The Abolition of Man, the fact that the scientist has succeeded where the magician failed has put such a wide contrast between them in popular thought that the real story of the birth of science is misunderstood. You will even find people who write about the 16th century as if magic were a medieval survival and science the new thing that came in to sweep it away. Those who have studied the period know better. There was very little magic in the Middle Ages. The 16th and 17th centuries are the high noon of magic, the serious magician endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. One was sickly and died, the other strong and throve. But they were twins. They were born of the same impulse. Science and magic comes from man's trying to control the things of this world by means of human effort. And in that sense, they're twins. But whether you call it science or magic, it clearly is trusting in mere man. However, later, Jacob comes to understand that his wealth was 
God's doing, not his effort in science. Genesis 31, 7 through 9, Jacob is speaking to his wives and he says, your father has cheated me by changing my wages 10 times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be my wages, then all the flock gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked one will be your wages, then all the flock bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. It was God who was giving him the sheep and the goats, not his endeavor at science. Since presumably sometimes his wages were changed from speckled to streaked while the lambs and the kids were in utero, his science wouldn't work. But Jacob acknowledged that God was bringing blessings to him. Through it all, Jacob's life is stunted. As Jacob flees for his life from his father-in-law, he is returning to the land of his brother Esau, who has threatened to kill him some 20 years earlier. Jacob has come to know he can't trust man. He doesn't trust his brother. He doesn't trust his father-in-law. He is really between the devil and the deep blue sea. His own trickery, his own science have ultimately not brought him success. On the way home, he wrestles with God and is renamed Israel. Israel is a compound word in Hebrew. The second part of the name El is the name for God, El or Elohim, the creator God. The first part, Israel, is a bit more uncertain as to its meaning. It either means strives or more likely rules. Some have suggested he strives with God is its meaning. But if that were its meaning, what's the difference between that and Jacob? He strove with God his whole life. I agree with James Boyce, who thought Israel meant God rules. That indeed is the long lesson that Jacob learned through much of his life. His taking advantage of situation, his trickery, and his science do not bring blessing. Only the Lord brings blessing to his life. I've offered these two extended illustrations to point out the universal truth. The one who trusts in man is like the dwarf juniper in the desert. When we turn any time in our lives to trust not in the Lord, but to trust in man, our lives shrivel. Secondly, we turn from the negative to the positive. To trust in God brings blessings and fruitfulness. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Verse 7, Jeremiah says, and then repeats the phrase, trusts in the Lord. He clearly wants us to see the focus of fruitful trust. 
And the Lord there is in all caps, you will note in your English translation. It's in all caps because it speaks of the personal covenant name of God, which we speak of as Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord in all caps. This is the I am who proclaimed his name to Moses at the burning bush. It is the I am who revealed his character by delivering Israel from Egypt. Blessings come to those who trust in the Lord. Blessing means being approved of by God and living with his acceptance and love. The one who trusts in the Lord is blessed no matter the circumstances of his life. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. At the heart of all blessing is that they are approved of. They're accepted by God. That is our great blessing. Those who trust in the Lord are like a tree planted by water. They flourish. They bear fruit even in seasons of drought. The human tendency, even for believers in the Lord, is to trust in God and to trust in man at the same time. God in medicine or God in science or God in money. We have the tendency to want to try to cover all our bases. People trust man as well as God, and they pray sometimes to many different gods. In Genesis, we read of Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the one that he loved. But she steals her father's household gods. Isn't that interesting? She believes in God Almighty, yet she steals the household gods. Why? Uh, well, you just want everything you can, you know? Trust in the Lord and trust in the other gods and trust in this and trust in that, rather than trusting in the Lord alone. Jeremiah, as does the psalmist in Psalm 1, sets trust in God and as the opposite of trust in man. We are to trust in God alone and not to trust in man. For those who trust in God, there is no place indeed for trusting in man. One of the problems when we do not trust man is that we are tempted to become rather negative people in the world in which we live. We are tempted to become cynical about all of life. A cynic is one who believes that people are motivated purely by self-interest. That sounds a lot like a Calvinist, doesn't it? Who believes in total depravity? Well, they're not quite the same thing. Because as Calvinists, we believe in common grace, which allows even those who are evil to give good gifts to their children, as Jesus said. But like the cynic, we believe that people are evil by nature and are not trustworthy. Yet our faith should deliver us from becoming negative about all of life. Because we believe God is in control and not man. Thus, while man cannot be trusted, God is always to be trusted. Jesus was something of a cynic about people. 
In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we read, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Later on, Jesus would learn experientially not to trust in man, for Judas betrayed him and Peter denied him. But these verses much earlier in Jesus' ministry tell us that Jesus knew all along that man was not trustworthy. How then could Jesus choose 12 disciples, give himself to them for three years, and pour his life into them, live with them, share deeply with them, love them? The answer is because Jesus trusted his heavenly Father. Jesus was called to love them by the Father, and thus he trusted God fully. Jesus was something of a positive cynic. He did not believe in man, but he entrusted himself to God fully. He knew God was in control. He knew his Father would change lives. Jesus knew that the Holy Spirit would apply his own blood to selfish sinners and change our lives. There's no place for negativity when we trust in the Lord. Trust and obey, says the song. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. To be truly blessed, we must trust him. Thirdly, as we look on in this portion, we see that the heart of man is bent to trust in man rather than God. Verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 9 is a well-known verse and helps us understand many things about life. But the context is very interesting to consider. At first glance, it may surprise us that Jeremiah, has, who's been contrasting faith in man with faith in God, and then he comes with this statement, did he change the subject? But with a little reflection, I think we see that, no, he's still dealing with that same issue. The question is, why, since faith in God brings rich blessing and faith in man brings curses, why do we see so many people who trust people rather than God? Why do believers like Abraham and Jacob and Peter and Paul and us waver in our faith in God alone and find so alluring the temptation to trust in mere man? The answer to both questions is that the heart is deceitful above all things. We have all heard the mantra that rings out in our culture, follow your heart. Jeremiah tells us our hearts lie to us. Our heart is deceitful. To follow one's heart is to follow lies that we tell ourselves. Rather than following our heart, we need to follow God's word. We need to trust the Lord. 
Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We need to encourage a healthy skepticism about faith in mere man. We need to encourage that skepticism in relationship to ourselves as well as in relationship to others. Why are people so gullible that they believe almost any lie they are told? Thomas Sowell said, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. And I would add to that, because their hearts are deceitful, when given a choice, they typically believe the lie that is told to manipulate them rather than the truth that is told to benefit them. People want to believe a lie. They want to believe in themselves. They want to believe in human ingenuity. They want to return to the Tower of Babel. The hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. There are many voices that tell us to believe in man, the advertiser who wants to sell products, the politician who wants to be elected to gain power or prestige, the religious charlatan who wants to take people away from trust in the Lord. It's been a while since I've heard of a specific date that has been set for the end of the world to come. I wouldn't be at all surprised to hear a date pop up at any time. Years ago, I received a book in the mail, 88 Reasons Why the World Will End in 1988. I kept that book for a few years, past 1988, and a little while longer. It, but studies show that when cults set dates like this, what happens is the cult gains adherence. And when the date passes, they lose adherence. But the gain is greater than the loss. Isn't that amazing? It's just been proved to them that they've been lied to. And yet, they continue to adhere because there's something about hearing a message that they want to hear. People believe what they want to believe even when it is proved to be untrustworthy. Who can understand the heart? Verse 10 tells us, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. People trust man rather than God because their hearts are deceitful above all things. Faith. Good thing or bad thing? Well, that depends on several things, but most importantly, it depends upon the object of your faith. Are you trusting in man? In your heart? In yourself? That will lead to disaster. Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you trusting in what the Lord has given us in Christ Jesus? Are you trusting the finished work of Christ on the cross to save you from your sins? This 
faith will lead to eternal blessings. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to examine carefully what we believe and who we believe. Help us to know that trust in and of and by itself is not the important thing, it's who we are trusting. And help us to, as we examine our faith, to see and by your grace to know that our faith is firmly based upon you and what you have done for us. And where we have trusted in man, foolishly done so, take our gullibility away. Take that which has shriveled our lives and turn us to trust in you alone. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.